Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, October 31st, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor, Red Omen. Hey, that's me. Senior Editor, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writers, Y Trend Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. Okay, so it's Halloween today. Uh, tonight, I'm wondering, what, what are you, your guys' plans? Are you doing anything exciting? Jacob, what, what are you doing? Uh, literally just going down the street to my friend's house, uh, shutting all my lights off so my dogs won't be bothered by trick-or-treaters, and I'm going to sit on his driveway with him and hand out candy and drink. And that's my entire plan. Nothing special at all. I already, my Halloween climaxed when I did nine haunted houses uh, earlier in the month, so uh, I'm going to sit this one out when it comes to heavy-duty Halloweening. Are, are you just going to be in a lawn chair in your normal clothes, or are you going to dress up? I'm going to wear my, um, I have Agamotto, uh, replica prop so i can be dr strange on vacation or something something else to do any effort for <laughs> okay uh brad what are you up to absolutely nothing <laughs> no i'm not what i might go i might go see a movie with my girlfriend but um but will it be yeah, a scary movie probably not 
she's not uh, the biggest horror movie fan. She gets scared too easily, and uh, can can have nightmares. So um, we will probably we might go see something that's in theaters nearby. Ben, what about you? Uh, I'm probably not doing much of anything. I'm certainly not dressing up and going out. My wife and I might watch a horror movie or something. We have a couple things on the DVR. We might check out, like, uh, I don't know, The Exorcist. I've somehow never seen The Exorcist. Or um, uh, The Haunting from the 1960s. That one's also on the DVR. So probably one of those. Oh, Ben, those are both great. You should watch both those and report back. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. Uh, HT. You must be you're you're the youngest person here, so you must be going out and doing something exciting. I have no plans. My roommate is going out to a concert with her boyfriend and leaving me alone. <laughs> so I don't know. I might do laundry or something. <laughs> I actually got invited to a party in Brooklyn, but I don't want to go by myself because all my friends have plans. So I'm just gonna like, sit by myself alone in my in the dark. <laughs> okay then. Chris, you are the horror guy on this podcast. Uh, Halloween must be something special to you, so you're probably doing something exciting, right? No. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, Halloween is is a big deal for me. It always used to be a big deal for me. I used to always, when I was, you know, at working office jobs, I used to always take the day off and also the day after, and I would have all these things and i don't know this year i didn't really do much i mean i'll probably watch something scary but i do that pretty much every week anyway and i don't know i'm just i'm not feeling it this year it's like 75 (laughs) degrees here which is like awful like i don't like that's not halloween weather for me and i don't feel like (laughs) doing anything i don't know i just uh so yeah nothing nothing is gonna be handing out candy to kids I don't. I guess trick or treating in my neighborhood starts at like three p.m., which is like less than an hour from now. And oh, wow. I don't. I don't fucking feel like it. Like, just stay away from my house, kids. If you're listening, <laughs> children everywhere, just stay away. Is, is there any like movie that you must rewatch every? Maybe not on Halloween, but Halloween season. I mean, there's. A, I have like a handful of movies I always rewatch in October, and I've pretty much done most of them uh so yeah you know i don't know it's 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 an off year it's an off i'm just tired it's a tiring year i want 2019 to get out of here let's maybe next year will be better well it's almost over um tonight i am going to west hollywood's halloween carnival which is actually not a carnival at all it's basically just like a a street that's closed down and people in costumes take it over and are drinking and it's a insane party. I think it might be the biggest Halloween party in the world. If not, uh, it is the biggest in the U.S. Um, so we're uh, Kitra and I are going to get dressed up as uh, I have a hot dog costume and she has a hamburger costume and uh, our dogs also have costumes. So we're going to take them to the Halloween carnival and uh, hopefully have some fun. Uh, but okay, let's get into what we've been doing and not what we're, we are going to do or not do. Um, let's start out with me. Um, I've had kind of a busy week. Uh, a lot of it involves magic, so I'll, I'll kind of fast forward through a lot of that. I went to the Penguin Max Expo, which is a magic, magic convention in Culver City. It was fun. You don't really need to know more than that. Uh, I The Magic Castle every year for Halloween it is like the biggest week of the year. Like they celebrate, they go all out for Halloween. Um, and this year they went with a cursed temple theme, which basically means that they were 
you know, didn't have the license for Indiana Jones, but it was basically Indiana Jones. So the entire Magic Castle was turned into a temple. And uh, I tweeted out a link to a video of that. So if you want to see that, it is actually very impressive what they did. And, like, at the end of the temple, there's actually, like, there's this whole scavenger hunt. And at the end of the temple, there is a moment where you can actually, like, grab the, the idol and replace it with something. And if you have figured out all the clues and got everything right, you you win. So uh, I, did, I did not try that, though. I just watched Magic because I'm lame. Um, and what else did I do? I, I went to a bunch of haunted events. So uh, I went to uh, two haunted events I've never been to in L.A. One of them is called Reign of Terror. This is a haunted house that is in the middle of nowhere. It's in uh, it's in Thousand Oaks, which is like way out in the valley um, to travel over an hour to get there. Uh, but and this is in a mall, which is weird because you don't usually see these. I'm not sure what that part of the mall normally is but they have a huge part of this mall that they basically they sell tickets it's like twenty dollars or if you want 30 you spend 35 dollars if you want a fast pass which gets you in front of the line and uh this is a, it's a usually like haunted mazes last maybe like five to eight minutes long usually this one was like 25 minutes long from start to finish it, it went through a number of different themes and uh each room was just so well even though like you can tell they don't have the budget of like a halloween horror nights or even not scary farm it was just so well planned and orchestrated and i know like i think the day after halloween they do you can go to this haunted house and do it with the lights out and by that i mean like everything's lit nicely they do it with the lights out and they give like the leader of your group like a glow stick so it's even like ultra scary i'm tempted to even try that because that sounds like it'd be crazy but i i I highly recommend this if you're in la and you're listening to this uh right now i think this goes on for a couple more days or you know you could always catch it i think it happens every year it's called reign of terror it's worth making the trek out to thousand oaks to see and uh, the other haunted event I went to is this thing called uh, Los Angeles Haunted Hayride. And uh, I've heard about this for years. This takes place uh, in Griffith Park in an abandoned section uh, that used to be an old zoo. So, you know, abandoned old zoo. I had always thought that it was kind of like a more kid-friendly haunted event. Like, you know, with like just pumpkins and stuff like that. But it is actually a haunted, like, you know, there are scare actors. It is haunt. There are mazes. Um, so we went, uh, with my, our friends, Dan and Rosanna and, uh, it, it was a lot of fun. Uh, the, the centerpiece is actually a hayride where you get in the back of a tractor that's filled with, you know, the back is filled with hay and you're taken through the abandoned zoo and, you know, all these scenes happen around you and scare actors scare you. Uh, they have a couple, uh, good haunted uh mazes which are good uh and they really have more room than i think like the other haunted events so they they play play that up the the one thing that was actually really interesting about this is they had one thing called trick or treat where it was kind of like you go through a series of uh twists and turns to different houses and you would actually knock in the house and in each house, there would be a different thing. So the one house would have, like, an alien that would come out and scare you. And another would have, like, a zombie. And they would give you candy. 
So it was, I mean, it was a little bit more uh, family friendly, but I, I almost wish like someone like Disney would take this approach with their Halloween parties because that was kind of fun. Uh, we recorded a video for this for Ordinary Adventures. You can watch that. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, but I enjoyed both of them. So I'd recommend, highly recommend Reign of Terror and L.A. Haunted Hayride. Although uh, I think L.A. Haunted Hayride is pretty expensive. I, I, I know my friends got me into that one. And uh, I'll, I'll, also I was looking this up. This is kind of strange. I didn't know this, but uh, L.A. Haunted Hayride started on Shark Tank in an episode in one of the first seasons. They, they went to Shark Tank to to pitch it to the sharks. And now it's become a huge like L.A. haunt kind of thing. So uh, there you go. Jacob, uh, what have you been up to? Uh, nothing that exciting, Peter. I'm going to be the guy who talks about, you know, weight loss and exercise today because uh, some people really love that and let us know <laughs> the reviews on iTunes. Uh, but I'll be fast. Um, pretty much over the past uh, six months or so, I've really doubled down on strength training, and uh, my cardio has been mostly uh, on a stationary bike. I, I've up to about 13 miles a day, uh, five days a week um, on a stationary bike, and followed by extensive uh, weightlifting and strength training. And I kind of fell off of jogging and running. I decided to get back into that and start adding uh, regular runs a couple times a week into my rotation as well. And I started using the Map My Run app. And this is my favorite fitness app I've ever used. It is very, very simple. You just give access to your GPS. And it, you hit start. And it just uh, tracks where you're running. Uh, it tracks on a map. So you can like review your route afterward. Like draws a little map like for you. It tells you how long you've been. It tells you your calories burned. Gives you all the like the stats and information. Uh, it like a little voice will tell you when you've reached mile markers, so you can like be listening to music and a voice come on and say you've reached one mile, you reached two mile, you're averaging this amount uh, on time and and speed. And I love it. I mean, and also just seeing all the days you know next to each other, like you know, you like the little chart where it says like you know here's a little calendar of all the times you've been, uh, you know your time, calories burnt, uh, distance. It's just a really nice thing to have. And as somebody who tracks my other progress uh, in my home gym. Uh, like on the wall, uh, but can't, there's not a really good way to track, you know, running or jogging or even speed walking on that wall. So this app uh, really makes it kind of an addictive process. So that's a map my run. It's a free download, although you can pay for a, a version with more features. But so far, I'm enjoying the free version just fine. Well, very cool. Um, and that is called map my run. Map my run. So do you like have you done anything where like you've tried to map your run and made it like made a drawing out of it? Uh, like this, this is what that app does. I mean, previously what I would do is I would literally get in my car and I would um, drive my walking distance with the speedometer, yeah, the, the odometer going, and try to figure out what my distance was. But it's always inaccurate. I didn't know what my, you know, I didn't know any of the actual hard numbers of actual distance on foot or calories burnt or, you know, I was trying to time myself on, on like you know uh, a stopwatch app, and it, it never felt accurate. Never felt good. And um, but this, you know, does all that for you in a way that I'm finding incredibly satisfying. Yeah. Well, very cool. Um, Brad, you probably did the thing most interesting out of the whole bunch of us. You went to Pixar. I did. I went back to Pixar. Uh, this was my third time uh, visiting their animation studio campus over uh, in San Francisco. And I went for a special early press day for Onward. So I'm not allowed to talk uh, about anything, um, but we saw a good chunk of footage and i checked out the gift shop and got some cool things uh for christmas presents coming up and obviously some stuff for myself um and yeah it was uh i, I always love going to pixar it's you know the presentations they do are always fascinating and it's just great to get a glimpse behind the making of 
of these kinds of movies. So uh, we'll have coverage for Onward uh, coming sometime in the near future before the movie comes out in March. So, so stay tuned for that. Yeah, uh, people that have never been to Pixar might not know this, but for every film, they kind of transform their campus, uh, like and try to like have artwork and stuff for that film. Like, how how was the campus transformed for Onward? So the uh, they had the actual uh, the van that the characters Barley and Ian drive around in um, on campus next to the Pixar lamp and the uh, star ball that everyone always takes pictures with there. They actually made a real version of the van. So it has the unicorn painted on the side of it, and uh, the, the van's called, called Guinevere. Uh, we've seen it in the trailer, and it's it's pretty cool to see it as a real van. And then inside the lobby, uh, you can check my Twitter and see uh, the photos. They had these uh, big banners with art on them that look have like a very epic style, um, kind of like Magic the Gathering cards or other uh, you know fantasy fantasy based games, showing off various items and locations and characters that you'll see in the movie, things like the uh, the Phoenix gem and uh, the Manticore and, and stuff like that. So you, uh, you can get a glimpse at some of the stuff uh, that was on display there. It's, it was pretty cool. Uh, you, you mentioned you went to the Pixar gift shop, and people might not know, but there's a lot of exclusive merchandise that you can't buy anywhere else. So what did you purchase? Uh, so I got a cool new Incredibles shirt that has Frozone on it. And what else did I get? I got... I bought some stuff for my for my parents. Um, I got you know an Incredibles hat for my dad and a, a Pixar sweatshirt for my mom. Um, and then <clears throat> what else? There was I got myself a a keychain that has the the star ball on it. I hadn't seen that there before. That was I thought that was pretty cool. And my girlfriend got a hat. And then we got some stuff for uh, her her nieces and nephews. And uh, the one thing that I got, which I, I think I don't know, if, I assume you could probably have gotten it in stores, but I had never seen it because if I did, I would have bought it by now. Um, but they had a stuffed toy of Gerald <laughs> from Finding oh, Dory, wow. and I love that, that that goofy character. Yeah. So I saw it, I saw it, and I bought it immediately. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, Kitra will be jealous because she loves Gerald. Uh, HT, what have you been up to? Uh, this past weekend, I went to visit Sleepy Hollow, which is about 30 miles north of New York City. It's in upstate New York. And um, that was my first time visiting it. I actually wasn't aware that it was so close to the city, but uh, it was a nice just trip up. And um, we did a nighttime tour of the Sleepy Hollow Cemetery with lanterns and all. And it was something called the Mayhem and murder tour yes so the tour guide regaled us with all sorts of uh sordid uh events and deaths that had happened to the residents of that cemetery i was really excited though about holding the the lantern because i felt like i was living my nancy jew hardy boys dream so that was really cool and uh the cemetery too was just really amazing to walk through and um especially at night, which I've never done before. Uh, and uh, there we also went to the Great Jack-O-Lantern Blaze, which is this big uh, Halloween event that uh, takes place at the uh, Van Van Cortland Manor. And it's basically, it's basically like a, a theme park almost. It's um, <laughs> all of these little, like, 
and she took these carved pumpkins that um, about 7,000 of them that are shaped into random like statues or like there's a Statue of Liberty. There were a couple of dinosaurs. There was uh, one that was a carousel and that was really amazing to see and a, a bridge that was made entirely of, of glowing pumpkins that were carved as well. And uh, so that was just amazing. It was just uh I couldn't fathom the fact that like 7,000 of these pumpkins were carved and lit and um, just kind of turned into this a little bit kind of a gaudy but really fun and really just like theme park s experience. So that was really cool to see. And um, yeah, that was my, my weekend up in Sleepy Hollow. I unfortunately did not run into any, um, you know, headless horsemen or of the kind. <laughs> it was just a very idyllic, sweet fall looking uh town sort of northeastern town i almost wonder like do you think the people that live in like sleepy hollow or live in like salem massachusetts like enjoy that like they are kind of no like they probably celebrate halloween like all year long do you know what i mean oh yeah they're leaning into the halloween celebration there was (laughs) halloween decorations at every restaurant every store we were at they had named a bunch of the streets into halloween themed streets um they definitely like were very grateful, I'm sure, for the tourism that comes with Halloween every year. And I I actually heard that Sleepy Hollow, um, it wasn't the official name of the town until just recently. Like, it was known as that way back when, but then it had another designation before they uh, reclaimed Sleepy Hollow as the town name. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's move on to what we've been reading. Jacob, what have you been reading this week? Well, I decided to dive into Stephen King's The Outsider, a book that came out last year and was very quickly snatched up to be made into a 10-episode miniseries in HBO arriving next year. And uh, this is a very surprising book, so I don't want to go into too much detail because uh, it, it starts out as being very much like Stephen King trying to do his true detective, an extremely gnarly, gritty uh, detective story about a small boy who's murdered and the cop uh, in Oklahoma who's trying to uh, get to the bottom of it. And the character's played by Ben Mendelsohn in the in the uh, TV version, uh, and Jason Bateman is the guy who gets arrested uh, for the murder in the opening pages of the book and presumably the opening scenes of the miniseries. And uh, essentially, the book uh, presents an impossible case, uh, kind of thing where like um, either there's a criminal genius at work or there's a horror twist. I won't tell you which one it is because it, it it saves that reveal uh, pretty late. Uh, but I'm very curious to see how it gets adapted because there's some stuff here that. Um, not quite hard to swallow on the page, but it's going to be, I, I think, uh, I think it may play easier in a book that does on, on, on a hit an episode HBO prestige series starring Ben Mendelsohn. So we'll see how that plays out. But um, it's creepy. Uh, the mystery is uh, engaging and, uh, strange enough, it is a weird direct sequel to, um, King's Bill Hodges trilogy, which was Mr. Mercedes, Finders Find Keepers, and End of Watch. Uh, three books I have not read. <laughs> so um, suddenly a character from those books pops up halfway through and becomes a major character. And Stephen King's universe is already intertwined. I suddenly found myself on the outside being kind of like, oh, I need to go read these three books to understand where this character comes from. So that's my next goal. I'm going to go read the rest of Stephen King's books I have not read. I made a list. I think it was 17 of his like 70-something books I have not read. So I'm going to... Uh, be trying to tackling the rest of those before his new book arrives in May. And interestingly, his new book arriving in May it also wait, stars wait, wait. his character. You're, so. you're going to read 17 books by the time his new book arrives in May? Yes, that's the goal. That's crazy. Uh, 
I, I read The Outsider, which is a 600-page book, in, in, in a couple of days. Stephen King's compulsively readable. A lot of those books in that list are uh, novellas, like uh, Blockade Billy uh, and Elevation, which are, you know, 100 pages long. So I think I can do it. Uh, I just need to, you know, really batten down the hatches and work on it. I, I also, I want to be able to um, hope, properly, you know, enjoy The Outsider. Uh, so that's why I read that one first. But... Uh, Chris, I know you looked at my list on Twitter. You, you said, were you the one who said I should read Different Seasons next? Uh, yeah, that's of all the books you listed, that is the best one. And that is also a bunch of novellas, which all but one have been made into movies already. That's the that's the book with um, the Shawshank Redemption in it and uh, The Body, which inspired Stand By Me and App Pupil. So that of all the books on that list you posted on Twitter.com, that's the one I would recommend <laughs> starting with. And where do you fall on, uh, on The Outsider? And did you read the Bill Hodges books before this? Or were you were you familiar with this character before I was? Uh, I'm mixed on The Outsider. I skipped the Bill Hodges stuff just because I don't, like, they didn't appeal to me. I'm not really into, like, mysteries. So, and those are, like, King doing mysteries. Um, uh, This, The Outsider is okay. It's, uh, it's I like the way it started, but it's, it, the, the book it was sold as is only, like, the first like a hundred pages and it turns into like a completely different thing. And I didn't really, I liked the, the first hundred pages more than I liked the rest of it. So do you share my concern? Not, not concern, but curiosity that um, people are going to see what this is based on the trailer that, for, for the HBO show and be like, Whoa, this is not what I was being sold. Cause I feel very strongly about that trailer selling the first hundred pages as opposed to what the book actually is. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm actually curious to see if they like, they, they change things around and tone them down a bit. It's, it is going to be interesting if, cause like they don't really hint at supernatural stuff at all in that, that trailer. So I, I am going to be curious to see how, how it goes over. See, what we're going to need to do, Jacob, once you finish all these books in May, you and Chris are going to have to collaborate on a definitive ranking of every Stephen King book ever published. Hmm. Uh, you know, Chris, um, would you be down for this in May? Sorry, I was on mute. Yes, I would. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I, I have a new goal. But by the time I think his new book, Let It Bleed, comes out in May, I'll finish the bibliography of Stephen King and we will be able to do a ranking tied to that book. Yeah, we're, we're, we're planning things that far out at this point. Okay, so uh, Ben, what have you been reading? So I read a book called Game of Thrones, The Costumes. And this is one of three books from uh, Inside Editions and HBO that I got uh, over the past few days. And actually the one that I, I, I thought that I would be least interested in. Um, there's one about the photos of from the show, like from the set photographer. And then there's like the art of Game of Thrones. And I was really excited about both of those and the costumes. I was like, oh, okay, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll just like knock this one out real quick. I'll, I'll read this or, or sort of skim through it and then get to the stuff that I'm really excited about. And this book is super captivating. As somebody who loved the show, I was shocked with how instantly I was just pulled into um the the intricacies of all how all of these costumes came together. So the book is written by uh, Michelle Clapton, who I think won five Emmys for her costume design on Game of Thrones, and it's also uh, co-written I think by Gina McIntyre, who wrote Stranger Things: Worlds Turned Upside Down, which I think you have, uh, Peter. Yeah. Um, you and and Brad both own that book. Um, but it is a uh, a super compelling read. It is it, it gives you all these insights into the characters of the show 
that you wouldn't really get from the show itself. Like in the world of the show, Michelle Clapton decided that the Greyjoys, who are this clan of like seafaring raiders, would have used fish oil to coat their clothing and sort of make it waterproof. And the pungent smell of that oil would have been another way for them to sort of um, assault their enemies while they raided villages and strongholds and stuff that the Greyjoys always do. And like almost every single costume choice that she made was based in a like a quote unquote realistic decision making process like that, like taking into account, you know, the resources and the the wealth and the environments of the people who, you know, are living in different parts of Westeros and Essos and all that. And I just thought it was really, really fascinating, like all of the extra work that she did that went into these costumes that really, you know, builds on story and character and all that stuff. Um, there's one other example that I, I wanted to point out. She said that she made sure that the shoulders of Joffrey's outfits were often really wider than they should have been because it, in her mind, it reflected his delusional belief that he was like more intimidating than he actually was. So it's these tiny little subtle details that you probably wouldn't really pick up on when you're just watching the show, you know, for a, a traditional like narrative experience. But if you really like zero in on these costumes, you can learn so much more about the characters and what they think about themselves based on the the work that Michelle Clapton did. So the book is called Game of Thrones, The Costumes. I would highly, highly recommend it. I, I was really, again, super shocked at, at how much I loved reading this thing. And it comes out on November 5th. So if you want to check that out again, yeah, highly recommended. Okay, cool. Let's move on to what we've been watching. Uh, it seems like a few of you have been watching Dr. Sleep. I have not yet seen this. Uh, let's start with Chris. What did you think? Uh, it's good. I, I uh, posted my review on SlashFilm.com. Everyone listening should go read it. Um, I had a few reservations about it, uh, and it's hard to talk about those reservations because they're kind of spoilery, but it boils down to this. So as I'm sure most people know, the, the the Shining book is a lot different than Stanley Kubrick's The Shining movie. Um, and Stephen King has always been a little bitter about that. He does not like the changes Stanley Kubrick made to his book. So when it came time for Mike Flanagan to make Dr. Sleep, which is, uh, you know, the, the sequel to The Shining, he had a choice to make. He could either stick entirely to King's book, which is a sequel to the novel, or he could find a way to incorporate uh, the Kubrick ish uh, changes into the, into the film. And he, he took the latter route just because it would be silly to ignore what many people consider to be like one of the best horror movies ever made. So he had to sort of adapt the book King wrote while also adapting the stuff that Kubrick did. And the problem with that is Kubrick and King have, or in Kubrick case had very different, outlooks on life um kubrick was a lot more uh negative towards humanity than stephen king is stephen king you know for all the horror he writes is really kind of a a softy he he has sort of faith in humanity which i don't think stanley kubrick did and those sort of idealistic uh interpretations of of the world clash and so when Dr. Sleep is trying to stick entirely to King's book, which it does for a large chunk of the movie, it works really well. But for like the entire last act, it incorporates uh, Kubrick stuff into the movie. And that's when it starts to sort of go off the rails because it, it starts feeling like a completely different thing. 
and um that sort of like uh, threw me for a loop a bit but overall um it's got a lot going for it it's a big emotional horror movie which you know is kind of cool for a studio to release uh rebecca ferguson is is phenomenal in it this is like the first non-mission impossible role that someone has actually given her that is good like she's been just been stuck in like junk like that men in black see a remake like this actually gives her a lot to do and she's like the best part of the movie so uh yeah long story short i liked it i didn't love it i liked it yeah i'll i'm edging toward love here even though i do agree with you that the uh weaker aspects that you describe are the weaker parts of the movie and they're all super spoily i can't talk in detail which chris and i are already planning a spoiler review we're going to do a spoiler podcast hopefully so we'll talk about that and Strangely, I do think the absolute best scene in the movie comes in the towards the end, but it's kind of surrounded by stuff that I don't think works as well. But this is a long movie, two and a half hours, and maybe for the first 100, 110 minutes, I thought this was the best TV movie I've ever seen. Uh, it when it's, when it's sticking to the actual book, which actually is not a great Stephen King book, it's only an okay Stephen King book, it captures what makes his most of his work so well that I was going, good God, is Doctor Sleep going to be the best Stephen King movie ever? And it just almost is. But the Kubrick stuff that kind of invades in the last act, I I appreciate what it's going for, and I understand why it's there, and I'm not as down on it as Chris is, but I do think that it is what doesn't quite work, and we'll talk more at length about that when the time comes. Uh, but I've already talked a little bit about this when I visited, you know, um, the, the junket in Colorado, but I haven't heard a, a word from Ben, who I don't think you even read the book, have you, Ben? No, I haven't. And that's where I'm coming in with a totally different um, appreciation or interpretation of this movie because I'm I just have seen The Shining and this movie. So I haven't read either of those books. Um, I, you know, and as somebody who, you know, has has a, a deep appreciation for The Shining, I really kind of came away from this with like the opposite feeling as you guys. I couldn't wait for the last act of this movie to happen. In fact, I actually thought that it was way too long at two and a half hours and that a lot of the the storytelling setups in the beginning could have been trimmed because I just spent most of the movie waiting for the inevitable to come. And I'm, again, I'm trying to like avoid actual literal spoilers here, but um, I, I just like was impatient for a lot of the movie. And I, I do think that it's uh, well-crafted and, um, and certainly like, yeah, well done on a on a just a, a basic filmmaking level. There's a lot to like in it, but I just thought, in terms of like a propulsive narrative, I thought that it was it sort of dragged its feet a little bit, and I that that may be because it was sticking too close to the book. I don't know, um, but I just as a, a viewer who only knows the movies, I just couldn't wait for the final act to finally come around, and I was mostly satisfied with what I saw. Um, I do agree that Rebecca Ferguson was really good. I think this movie is kind of like a superhero movie for, you know, it's like a it's it's as close as a, a big studio horror movie gets to being a superhero movie because of the quote unquote powers that these characters have. Nobody actually refers to them as that, but you can sort of see how uh, Warner Brothers is probably like, all right, yeah, we can, you know, superhero movies are like the dominant form of pop culture entertainment right now. So we can get away with, uh, you know, giving this money or giving this movie maybe a little bit bigger budget because it has a lot of shared DNA with that type of storytelling. Yeah. I feel like uh, in the in Stephen King's books, uh, the shine, the psychic abilities definitely are a bit more propulsive, a bit more, you know, flexible. Whereas uh, in 
Kubrick's vision, the, the shine, was really just an excuse for people to see abstract and horrifying things. Flanagan really leans into you know, people who can shine in different ways, battling in different ways. So it really does become, uh, it, like, reminds me a lot of, uh, of like, almost like an X-Men movie. Like, there's almost mm-hmm. an X-Men vibe here. But, uh, that you know, King himself, you know, is such a pop culture fan. I don't, I don't think he would take that as a diss. I think he would, I think he would really appreciate the fact that there's a movie out there that's a big-budget horror movie with that, what about people in a haunted hotel using psychic powers to battle each other? I think I think that I think he'd be pleased that, 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 that that's out there. Yeah, and just really quickly before we move on, I just wanted to say that I didn't really think this movie was that scary. Like when it finally ends up where it ends up, um, that was when the suspense sort of ratcheted up for me. But for the most part, I thought some of the the main villain and the the cohorts surrounding her were like a little more silly than scary. And maybe it's just because it's tremendous. It's treading narrative ground that we've seen so many times before. Um, but I don't know. What did you guys think about that? Did, did you think Dr. Sleep was a scary movie? No, but <laughs> nothing really scares me anymore except <laughs> life, which is the real horror movie. Am I right folks? But yeah. I, I will say this, Ben, as silly as you think they're called the true knot, the villains, as silly as you think the true knot is in this movie, they're 10 bajillion times sillier in the book. Mike Flanagan actually finds a way to make them a lot more interesting in the movie than they are in the book. Yeah, uh, those true dots suck. They suck a lot on the page, Ben. So um, <laughs> when Chris and I speak of great relief of the true knot in this movie, imagine the page. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Okay, uh, I still need to do this, but let's move on. Uh, uh, Chris and Jacob, you also saw the new episodes of BoJack Horseman. Uh, Jacob, let's start with you on this one. Okay, so this is the first half of the final season, the uh, it's eight episodes. Uh, the final eight arrive in January, and after watching these episodes and like really thinking about it, I'm I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I'm prepared to call Bojack Horseman the best American animated TV show of all time. Uh, I mean, The Simpsons wow. has Golden Hour, but it it you know it, it's been bad for so long. And I'm trying to think of another American animated show that has been this good, this funny, this experimental. And this bold and this emotional for as long and at the quality of BoJack. I mean, there are episodes this season and in past seasons that are doing things that can only be done in an animated show. This isn't like, you know, a show that feels like um, we're just going to animate a sitcom or we're, or we're just going to, you know, uh, tell stories that can be told um, in another medium. There are ideas, visual concepts and motifs in BoJack Horseman that are animators generally using the medium in ways saying what can we only do with this medium and that's on top of brilliant character writing like uh that that hurts like this show hurts to watch in all the best ways and on top of being just so silly and so funny and the way to it like without spoiling anything there's an episode this season where it's an episode long argument between two characters who are having this brutal real breakup unaware that their friends have thrown a surprise party for them and are all hiding in the house, like privy to their argument and trying to like not be seen. So it rotates between this brutal argument while the slapstick of characters are evading them. And, and I've never seen a balance like where the comedy does not cheapen the drama, the drama doesn't cheapen the comedy. And it's doing it in ways that just, I it is as good as The Simpsons ever was in its early days. And I'm, when I say Simpsons early days, I'm saying maybe seasons four through eight, probably up until now, the best stretch of animation in American TV history. But I really think Bojack tops it. Chris, am I being hyperbolic? Ah, man, I don't know, because it is so good. I don't know if I would 
risk saying it's the best animated show of all time, but it, it's it's definitely up there. It's it's um I I I am like in awe of this show because on you know from a distance it looks like a silly show about you know animal people and it is that, but it, it's it's so um emotionally like honest it's 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 probably like the most human show ever created which is odd to say since all the like 90 percent of the characters are animals but it, it understands the human condition and uh depression and anxiety and self-loathing loathing better than pretty much any form of entertainment i've ever seen and the fact that it's this like goofy cartoon on netflix that does that is incredibly impressive impressive yeah, and I'm, man, uh, without spoiling anything, yeah, I, 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 we'll have to talk more when the season's completely over in January, Chris, about episode seven, where it it tracks all the characters finding pieces of happiness where they can, then episode eight threatens to tear it all down, then it ends on a cliffhanger, and I am dreading what happens to these characters in January. I've never had not my stomach for a cast of characters like this before. I am so upset about what, what may happen to them. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a little... Uh, unhappy that they had to split it like this because I I don't <laughs> just like waiting around for that uh, that sword to drop is going to be um, uh, uncomfortable and I just know like the minute it comes back it's going to be uh, <laughs> not in, not a pleasant to see but I'm I'm very excited for it to come back. By the way, I've never heard anybody talk about animated characters in a television show like you are, Jacob. Like this. Like, I don't think I've ever cared for anime. Like, usually they're kind of like, you know, disposable vessels for humor and, you know, escapism. And the fact that you actually are, like, on the edge of your seat dreading or wanting or whatever you're saying about this upcoming season, I don't know. That's just incredible for an animated show to do that. I know that The Simpsons will have like episodes where characters have growth, but they always abandon it by the next episode because they always return to status quo. Bojack's writers have a long memory, and so do its characters. Nothing that happens, no one who's hurt, no one who triumphs, no one who stumbles, it's, it's, it's never forgotten. It's built into the show's DNA that these characters grow, change, and remember. And it means that every single episode matters in a way that no other animated show, at least in America, has done. See, I, I, I'm going to have to see this. I think I, when, when it first started airing, I know everybody was – had. Huge acclaim, but as Chris said, it looks silly. Like it's but yeah. a, a horseman, and it, the thing that there's so much. We're in peak TV. There's so much great television out now that it, it, I, I feel ashamed to say this, but like when I was a kid and I'd be watching The Simpsons or whatever, my dad would be like, "Why are you watching those silly cartoons?" And uh, I was like, hated him so much for saying that because I'm like, these cartoons are so great. They're more than cartoons. They're you know, it's an animated show, whatever. But I feel like nowadays I don't have time for quote-unquote cartoons and that makes me sad because i'm becoming my dad but uh i don't know maybe it's because maybe i just don't have time for these episodic you know escapism kind of shows um and it sounds like bojack is not that it's not the one thing i will say peter uh, this is for the people listening to is that kind of famously they sent out the first six episodes to critics and the first six episodes of the series are them kind of finding their feet and I know saying like, oh, it gets good is always a lame thing and always a dumb thing because we all live in amounts of time. Yeah. But literally the first half of, of BoJack is the weakest the show ever is. And, and that's what's just pretty funny. And I remember IndieWire posted a retraction when they saw the second half saying our our review was wrong. We, the show is great. And, and they're, they like 
had like put out another saying saying that we'll never we'll never review a show again until we've seen a complete season because um there was because they were so blown away by the back half of season one and then this, and the show stays that good so if you're watching season one and saying this is only kind of funny this is only kind of cute i would recommend sticking around at least until you know the back half of season because it really does find its voice and it really does become something that i think is remarkable that's what happened to me i gave up after four episodes because I just thought it was fine and I never dived back into it, but I think I'm going to have to add it back into my list. Yes. Uh, okay. So what have I been watching this week? As I said, I spent two days at a magic convention. I spent two days at the magic castle. I spent two days at haunted events. So I, I haven't had much time to watch anything, but when I was watching stuff, I was watching screeners because Apple and Disney both sent their screeners for their upcoming shows for their streaming services. Uh, I caught the Apple TV screeners first, and I read off, like, all the, the shows to Kitra, and I was like, which one do you want to watch? I was, like, kind of excited because uh, we had all, like, you know, a ton of choices, and she was, like, the morning show, and I uh, I was actually, at first, very disappointed because um, out of all the Apple shows, this did not look like something that was for me. I, I, I had not seen a trailer for this. I had only seen, like bits and pieces in like a montage of the trailer that they showed at the Apple event. And it looked kind of like a workplace dramedy. Um, and it just didn't, I don't know, actually as a whole, I should say as a whole, I th- and I think this, I think I can speak for this entire podcast as a whole. We've been very underwhelmed by what we've seen leading up to the release of these Apple TV shows. Like me, me personally, like it looks very like generic, and very kind of like networky, like in the way it's shot and presented. Like the the ideas for these shows uh, aren't really the most compelling in my mind, or or at least maybe that's what I thought. So we do- dove into the morning show, and uh, I want to say first off, the first ten minutes has Jennifer Aniston saying the f word like four or five times. So I know we had reports that these Apple TV Plus shows would not have adult language or adult situations and uh that's just wrong maybe maybe they won't have nudity but this is definitely a show for adults and not for kids um this uh is a show about if you if you don't know uh jennifer aniston plays the the host of the morning show which is basically like the today show alongside uh steve carell uh, overnight, Steve Carell is Me Too'd and basically fired by the network. And uh, there is a search for a replacement for him, and her career is kind of uh, in life as you know goes into chaos. Uh, and uh, this, uh, you know, I'm surprised by this. This 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 show feels like the newsroom, which I really really love. It has lots of walking talks. It it is trying to say something bigger about what's going on in our lives right now or maybe our lives a year ago it's kind of sadly this whole me too thing seems almost already out of date which it probably says something more about society than uh whatever which is very sad but um this uh this comes from uh one of the directors of uh parenthood and friday night lights uh Mimi, or I mean, one of the writers, uh, Mimi Leader, uh, it has, uh, she, she directed the, at least the pilot episode. I saw a couple episodes. Has, this show has an amazing cast. Reese Witherspoon, uh, it's just like on, you know, she's just, the, she is bringing it. Uh, Steve Carell is great. Uh, Billy Crudup, uh, is awesome. Mark Duplass, 
Um, this show has lots of music, which clearly Apple is spending the money to promote, like lots of covers and stuff like that. Uh, it's funny that everybody on the show is using Apple products. At one point, Steve Carell looks at his phone and he has like Apple news notifications. It's a little distracting, but uh, in, the show is very sound stagey. That's that's probably one of my biggest complaints. Uh, I don't like Jennifer Aniston. Uh, she's better in this than she is in anything in the last like couple decades but uh she still feels more like a sitcom actress than you know whatever but uh, i am very surprised by this this is a show that i'm gonna keep on watching i've only seen the first three episodes because that's what they sent out to press i know uh critics in general are kind of mixed on this uh some have really liked it some have called it kind of like a, a sorkin light and yes it is trying to be like newsroom or sports night or like any of those kind of like shows. And it doesn't have the, the amazing script that Sorkin brings, but uh, it, it is really, I don't know. I, I, I am enjoying it. Uh, both catcher and I both really like this and we're in for more. And uh, yeah, so I, I'm shocked. I am re- re- really surprised because I didn't think I was going to like the show at all. Um, the other show we started watching is, for all mankind, which um, I know pr- people probably know that this show is about the space program. It's uh, from Ron Moore, who give a gave us a uh, Battlestar Galactica. Um, I really actually somehow avoided what the premise of the show was. Um, the premise of the show, and uh, I'll, I'll give you the most minor spoiler for the first two minutes of the show here because I think this is what the premise of the show is, is the, the show begins with the scene that we've seen many times before. It's people from around the world huddled around TVs or intercutting. They're watching the TV as the first uh, uh, landing on the moon has happened, and there, there's the astronaut who's about to to get out and land, uh, you know, step onto the moon for the first time. It's a great achievement for humankind. And as uh, the astronaut lands on the moon, instead of that uh, classic Neil Armstrong quote, we get a quote from a Russian. And we realize that the Americans were not the first people to land on the moon. It was the Russians. So uh, this this show is an alternate history. It's showing us what would have happened if this one event was different and uh it seems it seems like it's leading to what if the space race didn't end is basically the 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 question that it asks and it does so in this like mad men style drama um it's it's even though this is a fictional uh you know take on you know what would have happened it reveals some real things about people and places that exist in our reality which is kind of interesting uh seth gordon who you know i liked in king of kong and has done some uh some comedies i don't like uh it it brings it in this pilot uh and i have seen the first two episodes of this i'm really in for this and i i've heard that basically the now that I've watched this, uh, and this is the show that everybody's talking about, uh, critic like critically, this is the the most uh, critically praised show of the Apple TV Plus shows. Uh, it, from what I I've been reading, what the premise of the show is is that Ronald D. Moore wants to 
every season go through like a decade of of the space program this this uh, and eventually it's going to reach our point and go up to you know it's building up to Star Trek basically. I mean it isn't a Star Trek show but it's it's building up like you know what if the space race didn't end what if our you know our journey into the stars didn't end and uh in i don't know that's just really compelling i highly recommend uh, checking this out i know a lot of people probably aren't going to jump on and subscribe to apple tv plus but i know a lot of people actually get that for free if you bought a new product from apple and stuff like that so uh i would highly recommend for all mankind i i don't think the morning show is for everybody but i really enjoyed it i'm going to keep on watching it um, I also watched some Disney Plus screeners, which I am embargoed until next week, so I can't talk about, but I wish I could. Um, but yeah, more on that next week. Uh, Peter, I have a question. Uh, the Apple TV Plus stuff, uh, one of our writers, uh, Josh Spiegel, did an article for us that went up today while we were recording. We did a survey of everything that's at launch, uh, saying, like, is this worth five bucks a month at launch? And his answer, despite liking um, uh, For All Mankind like you did was a resounding no he felt like that he said wait until there's more here or wait until something else happens do you think that any that, that morning show and the other shows uh c and dickinson is is a uh, final five dollars is not a lot for, for some people but maybe a lot for other people is this worth sampling in your opinion well people are paying 15 dollars a month to watch hbo for game of thrones and i'm not saying that any of these shows are game of thrones they aren't but, uh, I mean, I, I'm sure people are paying, you know, $15 a month to, or the shows before Game of Thrones on HBO. Now I'm, I'm blanking of, like, what was hot HBO television before, like, Westworld in, in, in Game of Thrones? Uh, Sopranos. Uh, Sopranos. Wire. Wire, yeah. yeah, I guess none of our list. <laughs> I, I, I guess none of these shows are on the level of any of the shows other than our list. But, um, I don't know. I, I think if you... I think for five bucks, uh, for me, I think it would be worth it. Um, honestly, most of us in this world get a new iPhone every couple of years. Uh, actually, maybe that's probably no. Most of the people listening to this podcast probably get a new phone every couple of years. Uh, not most of the people in this world, because that is a, uh, a stupid thing to say. Um, <laughs> But uh, and I think like when you get a new Apple device, don't you get like a year free of Apple Plus? Am I correct there? Actually, I, I don't know. That's, uh, That's good correct. Question. Yeah. Oh, yeah, any any phone or computer or anything, you get a year free. Yeah, so I All think right, well, a lot of people are going to be in that category of being able to sample this at least for the well, first year. Well, what about me? I, I'm 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 on year <laughs> three of my phone. I'm on year yeah. five of my laptop. My, my Apple TV is two years old and it works fine. Well, it sounds um, like you're going to get a new phone or a computer soon. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. No, they're all they're all chugging along fine, Peter. Uh, uh, so, but what, what about me? Is it worth the five bucks for me right now? I mean, I love Ronald D. Moore, but is, is that show alone worth sixty dollars for a year? Uh, well, I don't think you're going to need to pay a year for it. But honestly, Jacob, out of anybody I know, I think for all mankind would be your thing. Like, I don't. Know, I think you would really enjoy it. Um, it is a little bit more drama than it is like, you know, sci-fi, but it's, uh, <sighs> did you like Mad Men? No, that's the thing. Like Peter, when you, when you, you told me this was Mad Men in an alternate history, I was sold. I was like, I'm really, really excited, but I'm also, <laughs> do I want to give them money for Dickinson as well? And I think the answer to that is no. So I'm really, really, I'm, I'm mulling this over. <laughs> uh, you might even like the morning show, Jacob. You might even like it. I don't know. I, 
I, I, I, I know, for me, it's worth my $5. I'll say that much. So I, I can't make the judgment for you. All right, fair enough. <laughs> okay. Um, what, what, Jacob, what did you watch this week? Uh, I watched Jojo Rabbit. I think the last person on staff to see it. I'm team Jojo Rabbit. I think the backlash against it is weird and dumb. And I think a Taika Waititi's uh, high wire balance of humor and tragedy works. And I think more importantly, uh, the decision to say that, um, yes, Nazis suck and are the worst thing ever, but also people who have been um, blinded into fanaticism have the ability to redeem themselves and walk back are both messages that um, can exist side by side. And I'm glad this movie exists. And I think it's a lovely, wonderful, beautiful little gem of a movie. And it will make my uh, end of the year list in its capacity for sure. Uh, Moving on, though, I finished Undone, uh, the other show by the creators of BoJack Horseman, the Amazon show. I talked it up a lot at Comic-Con when I saw the first two episodes. And I, I decided to parcel out. I didn't want to binge it. I watched one episode a week, uh, for, you know, taking my time. And this is the best show Amazon's ever had. It's not as good as BoJack. Uh, it is far more serious. It, it is a uh, show about a woman who believes she uh, has, be- has become disconnected from reality and can travel through time and, and space with the help of her dead father. It is... Uh, metaphor for mental illness. It is very powerful, uh, uneven, but ultimately really impactful. And I'm really glad I saw, I stuck with it. I don't think it ever quite reaches the highs of maybe the, of episode two, uh, but I really hope to get a season two pickup. I really hope this is a hit for Amazon because I really want uh, this team of writers, like I said, with Bojack ending, I want them to have another place to you know spread their wings and do really experimental, bold animation. And Undone is a, very much in that camp as well. Uh, I have not been on any of the Watchmen podcasts, but I have caught up on Watchmen. It is as good as everybody says it is. I am hoping to be on next week's uh, spoiler episode because, goodness, the show is very much my thing. I love it so much. But uh, we've devoted a lot of time to Watchmen already, so I will move on to uh, Eli. Uh, Chris, I need to know if you've seen Eli yet. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Without giving anything away, I'll say I liked it until I didn't. There's a... (laughs) <laughs> there's a big big twist halfway through this movie not even halfway but more than halfway and boy does it make it 10 times dumber than it had to be oh chris i'm the exact opposite i i did not like this until i did oh okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, eli's a movie about a kid with a um, autoimmune disorder who's brought to a spooky old house has been converted into a uh, clinic so essentially it's like what if bubble boy was in a haunted house and it's directed by a Syrian foy who did uh, the very bad Sinister 2 and the uh, actually very good The Citadel. And this kind of falls halfway between those two. It's not as bad as Sinister 2, not as good as Citadel. And, uh, yeah, I was really not on board with this until there was a very large reveal where I said, okay, I see where you're going, movie. I'll, I'll, t- I'll, I'll go along with this. And I really did. But as you heard from Chris, you may have the exact opposite reaction. Has anyone else here seen Eli, which is a Netflix movie, by the way? I think um, it was a studio release. I think Paramount may, may, may have made it, but they quietly sold it off to Netflix. Has anybody else witnessed Eli yet? No. No. Okay. Well, you, you should. It is a 98-minute watch. Maybe a good uh, Halloween view if you want to check it out. Uh, but speaking of... Uh, movie streaming uh you can watch tonight uh dracula 2000 streaming on hulu this is a time capsule of a movie it is everything that uh miramax thought was cool in the year 1999 for horror movies post scream it is a disaster it is gerard butler is dracula and he's never wearing a shirt and all the people you don't remember from 1999 who are about 
on the verge of blowing up but never did uh it is a it is a bad movie uh but also if you are like me and remember vividly renting Dracula 2000 from the blockbuster aisle and uh, when you were younger in the year 2000 you may have a good time revisiting this uh anyone else here have any want to pour one out of Dracula 2000 a, a relic of its era uh, I saw Dracula 2000 in theaters, I'll have you know, and <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm sure I thought it was, like, super cool in 1999, and I, I know I owned the soundtrack on on compact disc, but I also know, like, just based on my memories of seeing it, that it's it's a terrible, terrible movie. All right, and uh, I'll end this with a legitimately great horror movie. That is Town Still Lambs, which is streaming on Amazon. I actually have this on the Criterion Blu-ray, but I still saw it on Amazon Prime. Said, I'm going to watch Town Still Lambs. And I did. And I feel like because the movie won Best Picture, because it's so iconic, because it inspired the entire franchise, we may underrate it these days. We may undersell what a powerfully good movie this is and how scary Anthony Hopkins is and how like amazingly human Jodie Foster is. And Jonathan Demme... People don't give him the credit I think he deserves as a filmmaker. Uh, I mean, he passed away a few years ago, and he won Best Director, but I feel like his choices here are so incredible. Like One thing I've always noticed, but really noticed this time around, is how every character who's not Jodie Foster's Clarice Starling tends to speak directly to the camera when they're talking to um, Clarice, which means that he spent the entire movie literally in her shoes. Um, people are staring at you and you read their expressions of pity, disgust, anger, fear, scorn. And for a movie that's literally about a woman being put to the test in a field, you know, being an FBI agent where she's undervalued, it really allows you to feel her journey in a way that I feel like few other films could have captured. So Silence of the Lambs, guys, still a masterpiece, still one of the best horror movies ever made flat out. Hot take right there. Um, I'm kind of wondering because I know this podcast is generally uh, in love with physical media, but I, I heard you say, Jacob, that like you have it on Blu-ray, but you <laughs> saw it on Amazon Prime and you press play on it. Like, how often does that happen? Because a few years ago, when I decided to abandon physical media, that's what happened to me. Is I realized that I was watching stuff on Netflix and Amazon and whatever that was stuff that was in my drawer, but I was too lazy to get up and go across the room, grab it, and put oh. it into. For me, the big difference is that the Criterion Blu-ray of Sansa Lambs has all kinds of special features, all kinds of commentaries and docs. So I'll pull down that disc. I pulled it down when I first bought it um, to look at special features and everything. But when I'm already on the couch, when I've already had two alcoholic ciders, when I have a dog or a cat on me, I'm going to hit play on the movie. But if I want to watch Sansa Lambs, I'm really happy I have access to the best possible version of it upstairs in my uh, study where my movies live. So uh, I, I see where you come from, Peter, but like... Well, well, what, vanishes, what good is the best possible version if you're never going to go grab it off the shelf? Uh, because when it vanishes from Amazon, and it will, uh, I will have it. Because eventually <laughs> there will be two movies per streaming service, and there will be a thousand streaming services, and we'll have nothing. So I'm, I'm preparing. <laughs> okay. Uh, Brad, uh, you haven't been on in two weeks. What have you been watching? Uh, yeah, even though I haven't been on in two weeks, I haven't been watching much. I've just been busy doing other things with my life, and I hate film and television now. <laughs> Uh, no, but I, uh, I did take the time to watch Dolomite is my name. This was a movie that I was, uh, anxious to see because it really felt like a big comeback for Eddie Murphy. Uh, you know, Eddie Murphy is a guy who, uh, uh I, I liked his stuff when he was on Saturday Night Live. Uh, he used to be much funnier and then around the, the mid to late nineties just started making these terrible comedies and he continued that right on through 
the the 2000s and he just hasn't really made uh much of anything that has uh interested me or be, had been worth you know talking about other than his you know supporting role in in dream girls um so i was very excited to see this movie and it it definitely li- lives up to the hype this is um this is such uh, a fun movie and it really has uh, like an independent spirit to it i i actually i'm surprised that uh, we didn't get to see this movie at Sundance, presumably because maybe it wasn't done yet. Um, but it has very much a, a film festival fire to it. Um, it feels like a, a Sundance version of of Bowfinger, but with a, with black exploitation style, because uh, you know it's this true story of Eddie Murphy playing Rudy Ray Moore, who's this struggling musician, and he decides to become a comedian with this character named Dolomite, who's basically this over the top pimp kind of character, but who also apparently knows kung fu isn't as a deadly fighter of crime and whatnot and uh, it goes through the whole process of him becoming this character and then deciding to make a movie uh from you know with with nothing you know he he puts his comedy uh albums and all the profits from it on the line to make this movie with money fronted by his record company and you know pulls in as many people and calls on as many favors as he can to do it and it's you know such a such a ridiculous you know uh, over-the-top kind of movie and it's it's very funny. Eddie Murphy is uh, is great, and it's, the supporting cast is is awesome too. And yeah, it's just a very enjoyable movie. It's available on Netflix now, so take the time to watch it. And Eddie Murphy is back in a big way. And I'm very excited to to see how his career continues to come back, especially with all this talk of uh, him doing stand up again and hosting Saturday Night Live in December. So it's uh, it's a good time to get back into Eddie Murphy. I think. Very Brad, cool. have you seen the original Dolomite? I, ha- I haven't, but this made me want to go watch it just for a good laugh. Yeah, it's streaming on Amazon Prime right now. I have it saved in my queue, and I wanted to watch the original before I watched Dolomite is My Name. So I'm going to try to take care of that in the next week or two. But um, just for anybody else out there who's listening, I know that uh, the original is on Amazon, and then Dolomite is My Name is on Netflix. It, uh, it does show the it does the thing at the end of the movie where it, uh, it show, um, shows the footage from the actual movie for the scenes that they recreated in Dolomite is My Name. Oh, and nice. it looks like it looks like they did a pretty damn good job of, of recreating scenes from that movie. <laughs> yeah, Ben, try to watch them as close together as you can because uh, I think Dolomite is my name will give you an appreciation for Dolomite, which is it's something, it's a trip, but it's also uh, the con the context of of the biopic may help you appreciate what it does. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Brad, uh, what else have you been watching? So, I, um, like you said earlier, you watched some Disney Plus stuff. Uh, the, the only one that I got around to is I watched the first episode of The Imagineering Story. I'm just mentioning it just for for the record, I guess, because <laughs> I also can't, cannot talk about it yet. Um, but uh, I will say that there will just be a, a lot of cool things to talk about, I think, from this series uh, as, as episodes are unveiled. For sure, yes. Uh, ben, what have you been watching? So I rewatched The Shining before I saw Dr. Sleep, and I'm glad that I did, and I would actually recommend that anybody do that if you're interested in going to see Dr. Sleep, because there are a lot of connections there and visual references and obviously like clear homages, but some stuff that's like a little bit more subtle. Like there's one point where Ewan, McGregor, uh, Ewan McGregor's character goes in to speak with somebody, and that person's office looks exactly like the office of the uh, of Jack Torrance's boss at the Overlook Hotel in the very beginning of The Shining. And like nobody mentions it. There's no you know there's there's no like overt nod to it. It's just like if you know the layout of the Overlook Hotel, you're gonna be you're gonna recognize that location. And it's not even in the Overlook. It's in like a totally different you know part of the world. So. Um, 
there are a lot of little visual touches like that that I would recommend um, rewatching The Shining before you go see it. And also The Shining is just really, really good. I think it's also, I mean, yeah, there, there's a hot take for you guys. The Shining is a good movie, but um, it's also like so much more subtle in what it's actually about, you know, addiction and alcoholism and all of that kind of stuff. It, it is about those things, but the movie seems more subtle about it than Dr. Sleep because Dr. Sleep sort of hits you over the head with its messages a little bit. And I really like Mike Flanagan as a, as a person from what I've heard of him, you know, talking in Q and A's and stuff. And also as a filmmaker from the things that I've seen, but it just seems like it's impossible to recapture what made the shining so special. So I, I think he probably knew it was like an impossible task anyway. But um, so <laughs> I guess all of this boils down to, Watching The Shining before Dr. Sleep is not going to do Dr. Sleep any favors in terms of like, you know, directly comparing the two movies. But I think it will give you an, a, more of an appreciation for the little details in it. So, um, yeah, there's that. And then uh, I also watched Knives Out, which is my number one most anticipated movie of 2019. I was so excited to see this. I've been reading tons of Agatha Christie books this year uh, leading up to it. This is Ryan Johnson's new murder mystery that is is very much you know based on those types of uh, stories. And I really, really like this movie a lot. I don't think it's going to outrank Parasite or Portrait of a Lady on Fire in my year end list, but it's definitely among my top movies of the year. Um, it's everything that I wanted it to be. It's it's smart and um, the dialogue is so great. And the mystery is is uh, uh, elaborate, but not too elaborate. And I love the characterizations. I loved seeing like if you've seen the trailer, you've seen Chris Evans tell people to eat shit in it. And I just loved finally seeing Chris Evans step out from the Captain America persona after so long. Like he's been in some things here and there during his run as Captain America. And um, and I love him as that character. But seeing him in this movie made me really excited about the Chris Evans roles that we could get in the future where I, I was never really excited about that when he was Captain America. I was just excited about seeing him as Cap again next time. Um, so I'm I'm very like hopefully this has you know this bodes well for Chris Evans's future because uh, I think there's a lot to like there. Um, Daniel Craig's accent is like very extreme, but I and I thought I was going to be worried and and sort of. Um, like bothered by it for the whole movie, but you really like settle into it in like the first five minutes and never really think about it again. So if anybody's worried about that, <laughs> put your fears to rest. Yeah. But the the big question is, did it ruin all of Star Wars for you? <laughs> because Ryan Johnson directed yes. it? Yeah. Uh, absolutely not. No, Ryan okay. Johnson is, is the best. And um, yeah, this movie is really, really great. So uh, that's Knives Out. It comes out, I think, later in November. So definitely add it to your list of things to see. Um, I also watched, uh, I, my wife and I were trying to watch some Halloween season movies. Uh, one of them that we've had on our DVR for months now is called Arsenic and Old Lace. And it's from 1944, uh, directed by Frank Capra. And we actually started watching it probably four months ago or something. And the opening text of the movie reveals that it takes place on Halloween. And so we were like, oh, let's just wait until the Halloween season to watch it. So we finally came back around and, and watched this movie. It actually doesn't really have much to do with Halloween at all, um, which was kind of disappointing. But it's uh, it's um, it's based on a play and it's very sort of madcap. There's like a lot of uh, crazy misunderstandings. And it's essentially about this guy who uh, marries this woman and goes home to visit his aunts. And his aunts have been essentially murdering a bunch of like single old men who don't have any family, like because they think that they're doing those guys a favor by like putting them out of their misery in life. And he discovers a body and then 
uh, all sorts of craziness ensues from there. Um, it, it, Cary Grant stars in this movie and he feels miscast to me. I, I was reading that uh, Frank Capra wanted Jack Benny and Ronald Reagan and Bob Hope in the role before he ended up hiring Cary Grant for it. And my first thought watching it was this seems much more like a Jimmy Stewart type of performance because um, so much of this movie is characters doing elaborate double takes like uh, like Brad, you know, in, in Saturday Night Live, there's that sketch that uh, Keenan Thompson does where. It's it flashes back and he's like a director on the set of an old movie and he he does this super exaggerated uh <laughs> like how would you describe it you know what I'm talking about oh yeah for, yeah it's just like the most obvious double take where he just like he blinks his eyes and like wh like whips his head back and yeah forth. yeah he like bugs his eyes out and he's like what like, yeah <laughs> super like over the top where you would never actually do that in real life Cary Grant actually does like very close to that in this movie a bunch of times and it's played mostly straight. So um, it, it was a little jarring to see that, but anyway, that's Arsenical and Old Lace. It's, it's kind of a, a fun movie, but, um, but not like one of my favorites from this time period, certainly. So uh, ben, do you want to hear an anecdote about this? Movie? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, this is only tangential, but I'll have, I'll have an opportunity to share my most humiliating moment of my adult life on this podcast. Oh, it wow. Involves, okay. It involves this show. Uh, summer after I graduated from college, I directed a community theater uh, version of the stage play. During intermission, I had to step away to run some uh, technical errands outside of the auditorium and found myself walking behind a group of people explaining about how it was the worst show they've ever seen in their entire life. <laughs> so now when I hear, think of this movie or this show, I imagine my creative failings. Oh, no, Jacob, I'm so sorry. That's, <laughs> that's so, uh, oh, God, that's like soul-crushing. <laughs> anyway, you, you can move on. I, I like that story. It's, 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 it's a really good example of like a dream-crushed moment. Oh, man, wow. <laughs> okay, uh, so then I, I watched, or uh, we watched three other movies sort of uh, over the past three nights, I think. Hocus Pocus, um, which I'd never seen before. And we talked about this because they're doing a Hocus Pocus sequel. Uh, we talked about this on a recent episode of the podcast, but I had never seen this movie. And I thought it was, you know, it's very like um, people in my generation grew up watching it and really have a fond nostalgic attach attack, uh, attraction to it and sort of attachment to it. And I, uh, I totally missed the boat on that. And I was worried that watching it now as a whatever, 34 year old, that I would be really disappointed in this movie and it, it's not like the Goonies where which I also watched late in life and just straight up hated um it, it's better than that I think in that uh it, it seemed um I don't know this is another movie where all of the characters seem to be operating at a 10 10 out of 10 for the entire movie just like cranked all the way up um Bette Midler is like so over the top that she's like you know, gone around the world and back over the top again uh, in this lead role as one of these crazy sister witches. Um, but, uh, you know, it's like relatively well made. It's very, very 90s, very of its time. There are like a couple of bully characters that reminded me of uh, Bulk and Scully for or Skull from uh, the Power Rangers. It's like, oh, yeah, very, absolutely. Very, um, you know, just like. <laughs> like the the stereotypical bully and his like best friend who just repeats the last line that he said it's like that kind of vibe um the i didn't buy the the 
the, the acting of the lead kids at all. They were just like very like Disney kids. Um. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, actually, because I think like you're right about Bette Midler and the adult actors going above and beyond and being so over the top. But I think the kids are acting in a Disney Channel movie. Yeah, yeah. And the the adults, um, Kathy and Jimmy, Sarah Jessica Parker and, and Midler, you can tell that they're having a lot of fun with what they're doing, even though they're being asked to do a lot of ridiculous stuff. But the kids are just like, I don't know, they're, they're, they kind of seem like uh wet fish is flopping around on the screen whenever they're on there. So it sort of loses its luster a little bit. But uh, overall, you know, kind of fun. I, I can see the appeal. I think if you haven't seen this movie, uh, Freeform, what used to be ABC Family, is playing it like uh, every hour or something, <laughs> something ridiculous, like back to back to back all day today. So uh, if you're wanting to check out Hocus Pocus, there's a, a way to do it. And then um, two other sort of family-friendly-ish movies that uh, I had never seen before were The Addams Family and Addams Family Values, which we watched in back-to-back nights. Whoa, um, you had never seen those before? Yeah, I know. It's another one of those things from that that same sort of early 90s time period that I never saw with my own family and then just sort of grew up past them and, and never had the reason or opportunity to, to check them out. But um, we were looking for something Halloween related and uh, and this sort of did the trick. I think um, Barry Sonnenfeld directed both of these movies and you can sort of feel the men in black. You, like watching this, it, it's very clear why he was the perfect the perfect person to direct the men in black movies, because um, it, it has a little bit of that same uh, not the same tone, but you can you can tell that he's able to walk the high wire and, and balance the tones really well. There's um, a lot of goofy one-liner comedy moments that would maybe feel cheap and sort of dumb in another movie, but I think they work really well here, and that's probably partially due to the cast, which Raul Julia plays Gomez and um, uh, Angelica Houston plays Morticia, and they're really great, and, and they're dynamic and relationship is is pretty perfect and um a lot of the humor you know comes from the way that they deliver lines and they're just general over-the-top uh acting um so yeah i had a lot of fun with both these movies i think i liked both of them pretty equally uh the second movie i was actually really impressed with because there's this big thanksgiving um uh, play sequence and Wednesday Adams played by Christina Ricci sort of like puts the whole thing to a halt, like grinds the whole show to a halt and goes like delivers the speech about native American rights and like indigenous peoples. And, and uh, it seemed really woke for 1993. Like, Oh wow. All right. I see what you're doing movie. That's uh, that's nice. So um, yeah. Anyway, that's Adam's family and Adam's family values. Okay. And finally HT, what have you been watching this week? Uh, I saw a couple new movies, a couple horror movies, and uh, I rewatched one movie. Um, I saw Harriet, which is the biopic starring Cynthia Erivo as the slave, a former slave turned abolitionist. And um, it is directed by Casey Lemons uh, and written by uh, Gregory Allen Howard. It's a pretty standard uh, biopic and like veers on the formulaic side, but Cynthia Erivo is just magnificent in this role. She gives a real soulful and real impassioned performance as uh, Harriet Tubman. And um, I don't really have a bone to pick with this movie. It's just, it's very, it's very rote, but nothing is wrong with a good crowd pleasing uh, movie lionizing a historical figure who hasn't really been given that chance to do that in the big screen before. So I think it really works in that regard. And um, one fascinating wrinkle that I found that Harriet does is that it 
uh, takes the the claims that the historical figure Harriet Tubman talked about, uh, that she received visions from God be- after she had the severe head injury when she was young. Uh, they actually make that textual. So they incorporate this sort of paranormal element into the biopic, which kind of uh, shakes things up a bit. And she, you know, is able to evade capture and um, has a series of really lucky encounters because of these visions that she receives. And in that sense, it almost kind of creates this superhero origin story for Harriet Tubman, which is really fascinating to watch. And so, yeah, it was it was good. It's a solid, crowd-pleasing biopic, a little by the numbers, but Cynthia Revo uh, is definitely the reason to watch it. What else have you been uh, watching? I have been watching a few horror movies. Um, I watched A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which is the debut feature from Anna Lily Ar- Arampour. Oh, no, sorry. Anna Lily Amirpour. Um, and it's an Iranian vampire Western film that uh, I remember was kind of all the rage back in 2014. And uh, it recently got added to the Criterion channel where I got to check it out. And um, it's so cool and stylish. Uh, it follows a vampire who likes to travel by skateboard and prey on men who um, disrespect or assault women. So she's kind of this avenging angel in a way. Um, it's shot in black and white and it has this real moody um, atmosphere to it that it could be said it's more style than substance because there isn't really much to this movie, but the style that Anna Lily Amapur gives to it is just so evocative and so just hypnotic that it it's just it's a great watch and a really interesting sort of adds an interesting feminist twist to the vampire mythology, which I found really fascinating to watch. So that is A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, and that's on the Criterion channel. And I watched a few other movies on the Criterion channel. I did uh, a double feature of two early Guillermo del Toro movies, which were recently added to the streaming site as well, and that's Kronos, which is his uh, debut movie, and The Devil's Backbone. And... um, Hot take, guys. That Guillermo del Toro really knows how to direct a movie. I was really uh, astonished by... I didn't really know much about Kronos going into it. I had read that it was a vampire film, but uh, there aren't really the many classic vampire elements in it. It's a movie that's very big, and I was impressed by how dynamic and uh, energetic it, that this movie, that del Toro... D- that how Del Toro directs this movie. Um, It feels almost like a Hitchcockian wrong man thriller meets like Cronenberg body horror. And I really, I enjoyed it a lot for that. I also really liked that the lead was an older actor. Um, It's an Argentinian veteran actor named Federica Lupi. And I thought that was really unusual in such a sort of high stakes movie like this it's almost it's very action-packed uh that I just I had a great time watching it and I also was uh surprised to find out that Ron Perlman was in this because I didn't realize that their collaboration began all the way from um Guillermo del Toro's first film so that was just it's a really fun movie to see Ron Perlman gives this just really delirious performance and um Federico Lupi is great as well as a um uh antique store owner who discovers this strange device that uh, basically grants him immortality at the cost of 
thirsting for blood. So it's, yeah, it's a lot of fun. That's Kronos on Criterion Channel. And after that, I watched The Devil's Backbone, which is a movie that I saw a lot of seeds for Pan's Labyrinth in. And you could say that it's kind of the beginning of Guillermo del Toro's saga of dark fantasy movies with that um, act as political allegory. Uh, Devil's Backbone takes place in... Um, during the Spanish Civil War and follows a young child protagonist who is orphaned uh, after his father is killed by fascists. And um, he uh, is uh, dropped off at this child orphanage where that is being haunted by a young spectral boy um, that ominously warns that uh, everyone in that orphanage will die. And um, it's really, it's a great, it's a really great, great movie um, that is, you know, a wonderful sort of loss of childhood innocence story on to the backdrop of political turmoil uh, in sort of the framework of a ghost story. Um, and it's uh, warmly shot too. It's almost shot like a Western in a way because this, um, it's the Guillermo del Toro really amps up the Amber Hughes and uh, it's shot in this very desolate sort of desert location. Um, I really liked it. The Devil's Backbone. And that's also on Criterion Channel. HD, um, <clears throat> excuse me. I still want to know if you um, have no Shape of Water and Pan's Labyrinth are, are streaming as well, because these three make such a great double fe a triple feature. They do. That's what I was thinking of in terms of like Guillermo del Toro's saga of political allegories as dark fantasy. Um, that is a good question that I'm going to look up right now uh pan's <laughs> labyrinth is apparently streaming on stars uh so if you have that subscription and um the shape of water i feel like it should be streaming somewhere and it is not <laughs> okay well you should read shape of water because i think i know people are always talking about you know del toro's you know bigger bombasticer <laughs> bombasticer more bombastic movies but i think these three are the core of who he is as a filmmaker i'm really glad you were you, you are talking about uh, Bill's Backbone. I think it's the one that people most frequently overlook, I think. Yeah, I I really loved it. It's, again, like a heartwarming ghost story, which is my favorite kind of ghost story. Yes. And uh, you also saw Parasite again. So not only has the entire Slash Film staff seen this movie, but you've seen I it. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, you haven't seen it. Okay, so you're in the same boat as me. So Chris Fra hasn't seen it yet either. No, I haven't. Oh, I'm wow. going to go see it this weekend, actually. Aha! Half the staff is with me. <laughs> but me and HC have seen it multiple times now. So. I know. So we've like, we outrank you now. We, <laughs> what? We what the heck? Make up for you guys not seeing it. Ben and HT are now editors in chief. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good, guys. Um, I, I, I just want to talk about it forever, but I can't because it would require spoilers. But I have to say, um, seeing it again is like, unraveling a Rubik's Cube that fit together perfectly the first time and retracing those steps surprise you and unnerve you in a way that is just like, it's just so ingenious. Um, and the first time I saw it, I saw it in a sort of private screening room with a bunch of other press um, and it was a much smaller audience, but I was so happy I got to see it if with a bigger audience and a full theater, it was packed. This was like on a Tuesday night and it was a packed theater, which was really exciting to me. Uh, I wouldn't trade that because see, this is a movie that deserves and needs to be seen with a full theater. 
when everything goes down, um, the you could hear like everyone in the audience holding their breath, and that's such a just a fun, just great experience to to have while watching this movie. Um, the guy next to me was just saying, "What the fuck, bro?" So <laughs> that was just that was, it's just such a great movie, best movie of 2019. Everyone see it. No movie will be better than this. <laughs> Okay, then. Uh, see Parasite because HT and Ben both say it's incredible. So there you go. Uh, okay, so let's move on to what we've been eating. Brad, what have you been eating this week? Um, because it's it's Halloween, I've been getting my hands on some pretty tasty treats. Uh, so first of all, this one, I don't, I don't know if this is new, but it was new to me. Uh, first of all, do you guys like uh, uh, Biscoff cookies? They're fine. <laughs> The only time I ever eat them is on airplanes, and I always hate them because I always <laughs> wish that they were better, that they were offering me something better. <laughs> but no, so no, I can't say that I do. Yeah, yeah. I first discovered them by eating them on airplanes, and I I really like them. I I like how crisp they are, and I just I don't know. I just really like uh, the taste and the, and the crumbliness of them. Uh, and I recently discovered that they have chocolate dipped Biscoff cookies. Um, there, we, there's a, um, a chain of stores here in the Midwest called Meyer, and it's, ba- they're basically very similar to a, a super Walmart where they have groceries and retail stuff and everything. And they have, um, in the, in their ethnic food section, they have a section of stuff from the UK and Biscoff cookies are very popular in the UK. And I found that they had these chocolate dip Biscoff cookies and the chocolate makes them even better. Um, cause I love, like I said, I love biscuit cookies in general, but having the, it, it basically it's just the bottom part of the cookie with a very thin layer of chocolate. And it's just the perfect mix of that cookie with chocolate. So if you like biscuit cookies, see if you can find the ones that are dipped in chocolate cause it's, they're a game changer. Um, there's also a new mystery Oreos flavor that's out there. Um, the flavor is definitely not as disappointing as the voodoo mountain dew mystery flavor, which again was a betrayal from the Pepsi company because it was candy corn. Uh, the flavor for Mystery Oreos, they already really pretty much announced what it was, but the the taste of it, it had a very cinnamon flavor and almost felt like a rehash of their their cinnamon bun Oreos, but just with the chocolate cookie instead of the the golden cookie that they did for that one. And the the it makes sense because the flavor actually turned out to be churro, which was fine. Um, but it wasn't anything that was remarkably different from any of the other similar cinnamon flavors that they, they had done before. So it was a little bit disappointing, especially because the last time there was a, a mystery Oreo flavor previously, and it ended up being um, something similar to the like the, the fruity crispy rice that they had done flavor before, but it was specifically fruity pebbles, I think. Uh, so yeah, Oreo needs to up their game when it comes to their mystery flavors because all their regular random flavors they release are, are infinitely better. Uh, and then on the candy side of things, uh, there's a couple new candy bars that I was on the lookout for. Uh, so a little while back Hershey's released a, um, a new version of their regular chocolate candy bar that was filled with Reese's pieces and they did another thing similar, but they did, did it with crushed up pieces of Whoppers, the malted milk balls. Uh, and so I, I like Whoppers. I don't love them. I, I can only really have them in like small, small, small doses, like just like just a very small handful, and I'm I'm good on the Whoppers front. Uh, but I do like how the, um, when they're crushed up within the Hershey bar, the 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 flavor mixed with the chocolate in general, the the malted flavor is much less overwhelming 
uh, it doesn't stick with you as long. So uh, I think that if I will have Whoppers in the future, it would be like in a candy bar uh, like this. And then Milky Way released a new uh, salted caramel candy bar. I think you can only get it at Walmart for the time being, but then it'll be everywhere sometime like in the near future. Uh, and this was pretty good, actually. I, I'm not the biggest Milky Way fan, and the salted caramel touch actually made it better for me. Uh, I like the way that the salted caramel mixes with the, the chocolate and everything else inside of the Milky Way. Um, otherwise, the regular caramel, it's it's almost too sweet, which I know is weird because, you know, it's a candy bar dummy. Of course it's going to be sweet. Um, but it's I, I'm not usually a big salted caramel fan, but I, I like the way it worked in, in this particular Milky Way. Uh, and then in the weirdest thing that I had is um, my after carving pumpkin or during carving pumpkins, I guess my mom had stumbled upon this sparkling caramel apple uh, juice, which like that, you know, uh, everyone knows like the Welch's sparkling grape juice and it's delicious. And this is kind of the same thing. She, it was, she found it at Aldi uh, and it is very weird because the caramel apple flavor is fine in candy form and caramel is good in warm drinks and sometimes in cold coffee drinks, but having the caramel flavor mixed with apple in a cold juice drink is very confusing to my taste buds um, because it's, it has, it's has a little bit of, it, it almost feels warm when you drink it somehow. I don't know what the, what the science is behind that or, or anything, but it's just a, it's such a weird touch in something that is supposed to be just like just a sparkling fruit juice. And so if you happen to stumble upon it, I would say maybe just just wait because it's just not that great. There's also a pumpkin spice one, which I am not brave enough to try because, again, it's a flavor that is fine in coffees and even iced coffees. But there's something about a pumpkin spice sparkling juice that just yeah, immediately makes my face contort in ways of disgust. I'd try it. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> but by the way, you've never had like caramel frappuccinos or anything like that, because that's a cold no. drink with caramel. No, no, that's what I said. Like it, it's fine in, in in iced coffee, but this is this is a it's a it's a sparkling juice and it has a caramel flavor in it. It's just mm. it's very weird. I'd have to try this out for myself. Okay, what what else have you been drinking? That's it. I'm I'm done. You're done. Okay. Uh, HT, what have you been eating this week? My continued adventures in Instant Pot cooking. Um, no, that's not what I've been eating, but um, I have been eating beef, Vietnamese beef stew. I tried, I recently made it in my Instant Pot. It's called Ba Ha. And um, this was a recipe that I was really um, intimidated by just because it required I felt like a lot of prep and a lot of ingredients that weren't usually available to me, but it was a lot easier than I thought it would be. And um, it was, it's just, a, it was a good day to have stew. It's been a little bit on the nippy side. And um, I was uh, been eating it with vermicelli noodles. You could also have it with um, uh, French, with just with bread or uh, with um, even some pasta. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited about this Vietnamese beef stew. It was really good and it was very, quite easy to do even though with instant pot it is always kind of a bit of a production so um took a couple hours but um just very excited about vietnamese beef stew right now yeah okay uh let's move on to what we've been playing uh i'm the i'm the only one that's been playing anything this week i had a game day which 
uh, rarely happened a- anymore. But uh, Jeff Kanata from the Slash Filmcast came over, and we got together with board game designer Jeff Engelstein, who was in town for a convention. Uh, Jeff Engelstein has done some great uh, board games. He's done Space Cadets. He's done The Expanse, The Dragon and Flagon, The Ares Project, uh, Pit Crew, a bunch of a bunch of stuff. He did a version of Survive. Uh, he's well known within the board game and tabletop world. And uh, he's actually well known because he's not just a board game designer, but he's also a podcaster and personality. He has he runs this podcast on the Dice Tower Network called uh, Ludology, which I've been listening to for years now. And it's all about how how to design games and how to balance games and, how, you know, mechanisms and stuff. It's, it's very, very interesting, very, very nerdy. Uh, it was great to meet him. And I had both of them over my house and we got to play a game of The Expanse, which is based on the TV show The Expanse, but not the book The Expanse, because apparently that's uh, they only had the rights for the TV show. Uh, and it was it was a lot of fun to to hang out with Jeff and play this game and hear stories of how he like met with like the authors of the book because I guess the book is written by one person. Like there's a pseudo name of one person, but it's actually multiple people. Uh, something I didn't know, Jacob. Did you know this that the expanse started out as a role playing session that the authors had with their friends, and then they decided to write it up into a book? I actually didn't know that. I I, I wish more uh, books were written that way because I guess it's amazing. Yeah, it, it was just very cool to hear how he was able to ad- adapt certain aspects of the the show and the book into this board game, and it's like this really fun territory control game and it uh within the rounds you your technology is upgraded it, it was just a ton of fun uh, i would highly recommend it that's the expanse and i would also say check out jeff engelstein's podcast ludology if you're at all interested in game design that's not just board game design but also like I, they sometimes touch on video game design design of some kind but uh it's it's a really good show i highly recommend it uh have you played the expanse jacob uh, I have not, and uh, I don't play the board game or the RPG, which actually came out, I think, last year. It's based on the same stuff. I really like those books, and I, I still have not watched the show. So I, I have a lot of expanse to dive into, I guess. Yeah, I now want to watch the show after playing the board game, which is kind of strange. But, um, okay, we have reached the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast, Slash Film Daily, published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow. Hey, hey, Peter. <sighs> J- Jacob, it's Halloween. Don't you have to, like, uh, you know, get your Halloween costume ready? And, and th- there's more important things to be done than reading out of uh, the gargantuan book of insults, offensory, uh, offense, and a friend. <laughs> I can't even say it. Oh, my God. Okay, just read the jokes. All right. Well, well Peter, <laughs> the thing is, it is Halloween. And the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and effrontery by Louis A. Safian has gone off to get his costume ready. So its best friend has shown up to uh, fill, fill its spot. Oh, God, the racist joke site again? Oh, no. Oh, no, the, the racist joke site has not come back. What, what I do have in front of me is https colon slash slash www.readersdigest.canada 
slash culture <laughs> slash corny Halloween jokes. <laughs> well, it has to be better, right? Like, we can only go up. Hey, Peter, why do skeletons have low self-esteem? Um, they have no body to love. Oh, oh that uh, yeah. HT loves that because it's a pun. <laughs> I do. Made me sad. <laughs> HT, uh, why did the ghosts go into the bar? Why? For the booze. Oh wait, I kind of love these. <laughs> <laughs> hey Ben, why do ghosts go on diets? I don't know. So they can keep their ghoulish figures. <laughs> uh, Chris, why don't mummies take time off? Uh, tell me. They're afraid to unwind. Uh-huh. <laughs> Brad, what's it called when a vampire has trouble with his house? Uh, I don't know. A grave problem. <laughs> These are good. Can you just switch to this from yeah. now on? From now on, <laughs> just read jokes from readersdigest.ca. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Peter, uh, why do demons and ghouls hang out together? I don't know. Because demons are a ghoul's best friend. <laughs> uh, Alright, this, this is too good. I, I ruined the bit with good jokes. <laughs> yeah, I'm enjoying these. These are better. Yeah, these are actually good. Yeah. Why can't the boy ghost have babies? Why? Because he has a Halloweenie. Oh. Um, <laughs> Alright, now it's ruined again. Yeah. It's bad again. <laughs> 